This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 13 and 14, from the Beasts of Tarzan. And now, chapter 13, Escape. For a moment, Rokoff stood sneering down upon Jane Clayton. Then his eyes fell to the little bundle in her lap. Jane had drawn one corner of the blanket over the child's face, so that to one who did not know the truth, it seemed to be but sleeping. "'You have gone to a great deal of unnecessary trouble,' said Rokoff, "'to bring the child to this village. "'If you had attended to your own affairs, I should have brought it here myself. "'You would have been spared the dangers and fatigue of the journey, "'but I suppose I must thank you for relieving me of the inconvenience "'of having to care for a young infant on the march. "'This is the village to which the child was destined from the first. "'Magamazam will rear him carefully, making a good cannibal of him.' and if you ever chance to return to civilization, it will doubtless afford you much food for thought as you compare the luxuries and comforts of your life with the details of the life your son is living in the village of Borganwazam. Again, I thank you for bringing him here for me, and now I must ask you to surrender him to me, that I may turn him over to his foster parents. As he concluded, Rokoff held out his hands for the child, a nasty grin of vindictiveness upon his lips. To his surprise... Jane Clayton rose and, without a word of protest, laid the little bundle in his arms. "'Here is the child,' she said. "'Thank God he's beyond your power to harm.' Grasping the import of her words, Rokoff snatched the blanket from the child's face to seek confirmation of his fears. Jane Clayton watched his expression closely. She had been puzzled for days for an answer to the question of Rokoff's knowledge of the child's identity. If she had been in doubt before— the last shred of that doubt was wiped away as she witnessed the terrible anger of the Russian as he looked upon the dead face of the baby and realized that at the last moment his dearest wish for vengeance had been thwarted by a higher power. Almost throwing the body of the child back into Jane Clayton's arms, Rokoff stamped up and down the hut, pounding the air with his clenched fists and cursing terribly. At last he halted in front of the young woman, bringing his face down close to hers. "'You are laughing at me!' he shrieked. "'You'd think that you have beaten me, eh? "'I'll show you, as I've shown the miserable ape you call husband, "'what it means to interfere with the plans of Nicholas Rokoff. "'You have robbed me of the child. "'I cannot make him the son of a cannibal chief, but—' "'and he paused as though to let the full meaning of his threat sink deep. "'I can make the mother the wife of a cannibal, "'and that I shall do, after I have finished with her myself.' If he had thought to wring from Jane Clayton any sign of terror, he failed miserably. She was beyond that. Her brain and nerves were numb to suffering and shock. To his surprise, a faint, almost happy smile touched her lips. She was thinking with thankful heart that this poor little corpse was not that of her own wee Jack, and that, best of all, Rokoff evidently did not know the truth. 
she would have liked to have flaunted the fact in his face, but she dared not. If he continued to believe that the child had been hers, so much safer would be the real Jack, wherever he might be. She had, of course, no knowledge of the whereabouts of her little son. She did not know even that he still lived, and yet there was the chance that he might. It was more than possible that without Rokov's knowledge this child had been substituted for hers by one of the Russian's confederates, and that even now her son might be safe with friends in London, where there were many, both able and willing, to have paid any ransom which the traitorous conspirator might have asked for the safe release of Lord Greystoke's son. She thought it all out a hundred times since she had discovered that the baby which Anderson had placed in her arms that night upon the Kincaid was not her own, and it had been a constant and gnawing source of happiness to her to dream the whole fantasy through in its every detail. No, the Russian must never know that this was not her baby. She realized that her position was hopeless. With Anderson and her husband dead, there was no one in all the world with a desire to secure her who knew where she might be found. Rokov's threat, she realized, was no idle one. That he would do, or attempt to do, all that he had promised, she was perfectly sure, but at the worst it meant but a little earlier release from the hideous anguish that she had been enduring. She must find some way to take her own life before the Russian could harm her further. Just now she wanted time, time to think and prepare herself for the end. She felt that she could not take that last awful step until she had exhausted every possibility of escape. She did not care to live unless she might find her way back to her own child. But slight as such a hope appeared, she would not admit its impossibility until the last moment had come, and she faced the fearful reality of choosing between the final alternatives, Nicholas Rokoff on one hand, and self-destruction upon the other. "'Go away,' she said to the Russian. "'Go away!' and leave me in peace with my dead. Have you not brought sufficient misery and anguish upon me without attempting to harm me further? What wrong have I ever done you that you should persist in persecuting me? You are suffering for the sins of the monkey you chose when you might have had the love of a gentleman, of Nicholas Rokoff, he replied. But where is the use in discussing the matter? We shall bury the child here, and you will return with me at once to my own camp. Tomorrow I shall bring you back, and turn you over to your new husband, the lovely Maganmazan. Come. He reached out for the child. Jane, who was on her feet now, turned away from him. I shall bury the body, she said. Send some men to dig a grave outside the village. Rokoff was anxious to have the thing over and get back to his camp with his victim. He thought he saw in her apathy a resignation to her fate. Stepping outside the hut, he motioned her to follow him, and a moment later, with his men, he escorted Jane beyond the village where beneath the great tree the natives scooped a shallow grave. Wrapping the tiny body in a blanket, Jane laid it tenderly in the black hole, and turning her head that she might not see the moldy earth falling upon the pitiful little bundle, she breathed a prayer beside the grave of the nameless waif that had won its way to the innermost recesses of her heart. Then, dry-eyed but suffering, she rose and followed the Russian through the stygian blackness of the jungle, along the winding, leafy corridor that led from the village of Magamuzam, the black cannibal, to the camp of Nicholas Rokoff, the white fiend. Beside them, in the impenetrable thickets that fringed the path, rising to arch above it and shut out the moon, the girl could hear the stealthy, muffled footfalls of great beasts, and ever round about them rose the deafening roars of hunting lions, until the earth trembled to the mighty sound. The porters lighted torches now, and waved them upon either hand to frighten off the beasts of prey. Rokoff urged them to greater speed, and from the quavering note in his voice, Jane Clayton knew that he was weak from terror. 
The sounds of the jungle night recalled most vividly the days and nights that she had spent in a similar jungle with her forest god, with the fearless and unconquerable Tarzan of the Apes. Then there had been no thoughts of terror, though the jungle noises were new to her, and the roar of a lion had seemed the most awe-inspiring sound upon the great earth. How different would it be now if she knew that he was somewhere there in the wilderness, seeking her? Then, indeed, would there be that for which to live, and every reason to believe that Secour was close at hand. But he was dead. It was incredible that it should be so. There seemed no place in death for that great body and those mighty thews. Had Rokoff been the one to tell her of her lord's passing, she would have known that he lied. There could be no reason, she thought, why Magamwazam should have deceived her. She did not know that the Russian had talked with the savage a few minutes before the chief had come to her with his tale. At last they reached the rude boma that Rokoff's porters had thrown up around the Russian's camp. Here they found all in turmoil. She did not know what it was all about, but she saw that Rokoff was very angry, and from bits of conversation which she could translate, she gleaned that there had been further desertions while he had been absent, and that the deserters had taken the bulk of his food and ammunition. When he had done venting his rage upon those who remained, he returned to where Jane stood under guard for a couple of his white sailors. He grasped her roughly by the arm and started to drag her toward his tent. The girl struggled and fought to free herself, while the two sailors stood by, laughing at the rare treat. Rokoff did not hesitate to use rough methods when he found that he was to have difficulty in carrying out his designs. Repeatedly he struck Jane Clayton in the face, until at last, half-conscious, she was dragged within his tent. Rokoff's boy had lighted the Russian's lamp, and now at a word from his master he made himself scarce. Jane had sunk to the floor in the middle of the enclosure. Slowly her numbed senses were returning to her, and she was commencing to think very fast indeed. Quickly her eyes ran round the interior of the tent, taking in every detail of its equipment and contents. Now the Russian was lifting her to her feet and attempting to drag her to the camp cot that stood at one side of the tent. At his belt hung a heavy revolver. Jane Clayton's eyes riveted themselves upon it. Her palm itched to grasp the huge butt. She feigned again to swoon, but through her half-closed lids she waited her opportunity. It came just as Rokoff was lifting her upon the cot. A noise at the tent door behind him brought his head quickly about and away from the girl. The butt of the gun was not an inch from her hand. With a single, lightning-like move she snatched the weapon from its holster, and at the same instant Rokoff turned back toward her, realizing his peril. She did not dare fire for fear the shot would bring his people about him, and with Rokoff dead she would fall into hands no better than his, and to a fate probably even worse than he alone could have imagined. The memory of the two brutes who stood and laughed as Rokoff struck her was still vivid in her mind. As the rage and fear-filled countenance of the Slav turned toward her, Jane Clayton raised the heavy revolver high above the pasty face, and with all her strength dealt the man a terrific blow between the eyes. Without a sound he sank, limp and unconscious, to the ground. A moment later the girl stood beside him, for a moment, at least free from the menace of his lust. Outside the tent she again heard the noise that had distracted Rokoff's attention. What it was she did not know, but fearing the return of the servant and the discovery of her deed, she stepped quickly to the camp table upon which burned the oil lamp and extinguished the smudgy, evil-smelling flame. In the total darkness of the interior she paused for a moment to collect her wits and plan for the next step in her venture for freedom. About her was a camp of enemies, Beyond these foes, a black wilderness of savage jungle peopled by hideous beasts of prey and still more hideous, human beasts. There was little or no chance that she could survive even a few days of the constant dangers that would confront her there. 
but the knowledge that she had already passed through so many perils unscathed, and that somewhere out in the faraway world a little child was doubtless at that very moment crying for her, filled her with determination to make the effort to accomplish the seemingly impossible, and cross that awful land of horror in search of the sea and the remote chance of succour that she might find there. Rokoff's tent stood almost exactly in the centre of the boma. Surrounding it were the tents and shelters of his white companions and the natives of his safari. To pass through these and find egress to the boma seemed a task too fraught with unsurmountable obstacles to warrant even the slightest consideration. And yet, there was no other way. To remain in the tent until she should be discovered would be to set at naught all that she had risked to gain her freedom. And so with stealthy step and every sense alert, she approached the back of the tent to set out upon the first stage of her adventure. Groping along the rear of the canvas wall, she found that there was no opening there. Quickly she returned to the side of the unconscious Russian. In his belt, her groping fingers came upon the hilt of a long hunting knife, and with this she cut a hole in the back wall of the tent. Silently she stepped without. To her immense relief she saw that the camp was apparently asleep. In the dim and flickering light of the dying fires she saw but a single sentry, and he was dozing upon his haunches at the opposite side of the enclosure. Keeping the tent between him and herself, she crossed between the small shelters of the native porters to the boma wall beyond. Outside, in the darkness of the tangled jungle, she could hear the roaring of lions, the laughing of hyenas, and the countless, nameless noises of the midnight jungle. For a moment she hesitated, trembling. The thought of the prowling beasts out there in the darkness was appalling. Then, with a sudden brave toss of her head, she attacked the thorny boma wall with her delicate hands. Torn and bleeding though they were, she worked on breathlessly until she had made an opening through which she could worm her body, and at last she stood outside the enclosure. Behind her lay a fate worse than death at the hands of human beings. Before her lay an almost certain fate, but it was only death, sudden, merciful, and honorable death. Without a tremor and without regret, she darted away from the camp, and a moment later the mysterious jungle had closed about her. We'll return with Chapter 14, right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And now Chapter 14, Alone in the Jungle. Tambudza, leading Tarzan of the apes toward the camp of the Russian, moved very slowly along the winding jungle path, for she was old and her legs stiff with rheumatism. So it was that the runners dispatched by Magamwazam to warn Rokoff that the white giant was in his village and that he would be slain that night reached the Russian's camp before Tarzan and his ancient guide had covered half the distance. The guides found the white man's camp in a turmoil. Rokoff had that morning been discovered stunned and bleeding within his tent. When he had recovered his senses and realized that Jane Clayton had escaped, his rage was boundless. Rushing about the camp with his rifle, he had sought to shoot down the native sentries who had allowed the young woman to elude their vigilance, but several of the other whites, realizing that they were already in a precarious position owing to the numerous desertions that Rokoff's cruelty had brought about, seized and disarmed him. Then came the messengers from Magamwazam, but scarce had they told their story, and Rokoff was preparing to depart with them for their village, when other runners, panting from the exertions of their swift flight to the jungle, rushed breathless into the firelight, crying that the great white giant had escaped from Agamuzan and was already on his way to wreak vengeance against his enemies. Instantly confusion reigned within the encircling Boma. The natives belonging to Rokoff's safari were terror-stricken at the thought of the proximity of the white giant who hunted through the jungle with a fierce pack of apes and panthers at his heels. Before the whites realized what had happened, the superstitious fears of the natives had sent them scurrying into the bush, their own carriers as well as the messengers from Magamozam. But even in their haste they had not neglected to take with them every article of value upon which they could lay their hands. Thus Rokoff and the seven white sailors found themselves deserted and robbed in the midst of a wilderness. The Russian, following his usual custom, berated his companions, laying all the blame upon their shoulders for the events which had led up to the almost hopeless condition in which they now found themselves. But the sailors were in no mood to brook his insults and his cursing. In the midst of this tirade, one of them drew a revolver and fired point-blank at the Russian. The fellow's aim was poor, but his act so terrified Rokoff that he turned and fled for his tent. As he ran, his eyes chanced to pass beyond the boma to the edge of the forest, and there he caught a glimpse of that which sent his craven heart cold with a fear that almost expunged his terror of the seven men at his back, who by this time were all firing in hate and revenge at his retreating figure. What he saw was the giant figure of an almost naked white man emerging from the bush. Darting into his tent, the Russian did not halt in his flight, but kept right on through the rear wall, taking advantage of the long slit that Jane Clayton had made the night before. The terror-stricken Muscovite scurried like a hunted rabbit through the hole that still gaped in the Boma's wall at the point where his own prey had escaped and as Tarzan approached the camp upon the opposite side, Rokoff disappeared into the jungle in the wake of Jane Clayton. As the ape-man entered the boma with old Tambutsa at his elbow, the seven sailors, recognizing him, turned and fled in the opposite direction. Tarzan saw that Rokoff was not among them, and so he let them go their way. His business was with the Russian, whom he expected to find in his tent. As to the sailors, he was sure that the jungle would exact from them expiation for their villainies, nor, doubtless, was he wrong, for his were the last white man's eyes to rest upon any of them. Finding Rokoff's tent empty, Tarzan was about to set out in search of the Russian when Tambutsa suggested to him that the departure of the white man could only have resulted from word reaching him from Magamwazam that Tarzan was in his village. 
"'He is doubtless hastened there,' argued the old woman. "'If you would find him, let us return at once.' Tarzan himself thought that this would probably prove to be the fact, so he did not waste time in an endeavor to locate the Russian's trail, but instead set out briskly for the village of Magamwazan, leaving Tambutsa to plod slowly in his wake. His one hope was that Jane was still safe and with Rokoff. If this was the case, it would be but a matter of an hour or more before he should be able to wrest her from the Russian. He knew now that Magamwazan was treacherous and that he might have to fight to regain possession of his wife. He wished that Mugambi, Shita, Akut, and the balance of the pack were with him, for he realized that single-handed it would be no child's play to bring Jane safely from the clutches of two such scoundrels as Rokoff and the wily Magamwazam. To his surprise, he found no sign of either Rokoff or Jane in the village, and as he could not trust the word of the chief, he wasted no time in futile inquiry. So sudden and unexpected had been his return— and so quickly had he vanished into the jungle after learning that those he sought were not among the Magamzam, that old Magamzam had no time to prevent his going. Swinging through the trees, he hastened back to the deserted camp he had so recently left, for here, he knew, was the logical place to take up the trail of Rokoff and Jane. Arrived at the boma, he circled carefully about the outside of the enclosure until, opposite a break in the thorny wall, he came to indications that something had recently passed into the jungle. His acute sense of smell told him that both of those he sought had fled from the camp in this direction, and a moment later he had taken up the trail and was following the faint spore. Far ahead of him, a terror-stricken young woman was slinking along a narrow game trail, fearful that the next moment would bring her face to face with some savage beast or equally savage man. As she ran on, hoping against hope that she had hit upon the direction that would lead her eventually to the great river, she came suddenly upon a familiar spot. At one side of the trail, beneath a giant tree, lay a little heap of loosely piled brush. To her dying day that little spot of jungle would be indelibly impressed upon her memory. It was where Anderson had hidden her, where he had given up his life in the vain effort to save her from Rokoff. At the sight of it, she recalled the rifle and ammunition that the man had thrust upon her at the last moment. Until now, she had forgotten them entirely. Still clutched in her hand was the revolver she had snatched from Rokoff's belt, but that could contain at most not over six cartridges, not enough to furnish her with food and protection both on the long journey to the sea. With bated breath, she groped beneath the little mound, scarce daring to hope that the treasure remained where she had left it. But to her infinite relief and joy, her hand came at once upon the barrel of the heavy weapon and then upon the bandolier of cartridges. As she threw the ladder about her shoulder and felt the weight of the big game gun in her hand, a sudden sense of security suffused her. It was with new hope and a feeling almost of assured success that she again set forward upon her journey. That night she slept in the crotch of a tree, as Tarzan had so often told her that he was accustomed to doing, and early the next morning was on her way again. Late in the afternoon, as she was about to cross a little clearing, she was startled at the sight of a huge ape coming from the jungle upon the opposite side. The wind was blowing directly across the clearing between them, and Jane lost no time in putting herself downwind from the huge creature. Then she hid in a clump of heavy bush and watched, holding the rifle ready for instant use. To her consternation, she saw that the apes were passing in the center of the clearing. They came together in a little knot, where they stood looking backward, as though in expectation of the coming of others of their tribe. Jane wished that they would go on, for she knew that at any moment some little, eddying gust of wind might carry her scent down to their nostrils, and then what would the protection of her rifle amount to in the face of those gigantic muscles and mighty fangs? 
Her eyes moved back and forth between the apes and the edge of the jungle toward which they were gazing, until at last she perceived the object of their halt, and the thing that they awaited. They were being stalked. Of this she was positive, as she saw the lithe, sinewy form of a panther glide noiselessly from the jungle at the point from which the apes had emerged but a moment before. Quickly the beast trotted across the clearing toward the anthropoids. Jane wondered at their apparent apathy, and a moment later her wonder turned to amazement as she saw the great cat come quite close to the apes, who appeared entirely unconcerned by its presence, and, squatting down in their midst, fell assiduously to the business of preening, which occupies most of the waking hours of the cat family. If the young woman was surprised by the sight of these natural enemies fraternizing, it was with emotions little short of fear for her own sanity that she presently saw a tall, muscular warrior enter the clearing and join the group of savage beasts assembled there. At first sight of the man she had been positive that he would be torn to pieces, and she had half risen from her shelter, raising her rifle to her shoulder to do what she could to avert the man's terrible fate. Now she saw that he seemed actually conversing with the beast, issuing orders to them. Presently the entire company filed on across the clearing and disappeared in the jungle upon the opposite side. With a gasp of mingled incredulity and relief, Jane Clayton staggered to her feet and fled on away from the terrible horde that had just passed her, while a half mile behind her another individual, following the same trail as she, lay frozen with terror behind an anthill as the hideous band passed quite close to him. This one was Rokoff, but he had recognized the members of the awful aggregation as allies of Tarzan of the apes. No sooner, therefore, had the beast passed him than he rose and raced through the jungle as fast as he could go, in order that he might put as much distance as possible between himself and these frightful beasts. So it happened that as Jane Clayton came to the bank of the river, down which she hoped to float to the ocean and eventual rescue, Nicholas Rokoff was but a short distance in her rear. Upon the bank the girl saw a great dugout drawn halfway from the water and tied securely to a nearby tree. This, she felt, would solve the question of transportation to the sea, could she but launch the huge, unwieldy craft. On fastening the rope that had moored it to the tree, Jane pushed frantically upon the bow of the heavy canoe, but for all the results that were apparent she might as well have been attempting to shove the earth out of its orbit. She was about winded when it occurred to her to try working the dugout into the stream by loading the stern with ballast and then rucking the bow back and forth along the bank until the craft eventually worked itself into the river. There were no stones or rocks available, but along the shore she found quantities of driftwood deposited by the river at a slightly higher stage. These she gathered and piled far in the stern of the boat, until at last, to her immense relief, she saw the bow rise gently from the mud of the bank and the stern drift slowly with the current until it again lodged a few feet further downstream. Jane found that by running back and forth between the bow and stern, she could alternately raise and lower each end of the boat as she shifted her weight from one end to the other, with the result that each time she leaped to the stern, the canoe moved a few inches farther into the river. At the success of her plan approached more closely to fruition, she became so wrapped in her efforts that she failed to note the figure of a man standing beneath the huge tree at the edge of the jungle from which he had just emerged. He watched her and her labors with a cruel and malicious grin upon his swarthy countenance. The boat at last became so nearly free of the retarding mud and of the bank that Jane felt positive that she could pull it off into deeper water with one of the paddles which lay in the bottom of the rude craft. With this end in view she seized upon one of these implements and had just plunged it into the river bottom close to the shore when her eyes happened to rise to the edge of the jungle. As her gaze fell upon the figure of the man a little cry of terror rose to her lips. It was Rokoff. 
He was running toward her now and shouting to her to wait or he would shoot. Though as he was entirely unarmed, it was difficult to discover just how he intended making good on his threat. Jane Clayton knew nothing of the various misfortunes that had befallen the Russian since she had escaped from his tent, so she believed that his followers must be close at hand. However, she had no intention of falling again into the man's clutches. She would rather die at once than that should happen to her. Another minute and the boat would be free. Once in the current of the river, she would be beyond Rokoff's power to stop her, for there was no other boat upon the shore, and no man, certainly not the cowardly Rokoff, would dare to attempt to swim the crocodile-infested water in an effort to overtake her. Rokoff, on his part, was bent more upon escape than anything else. He would gladly have foregone any designs he might have had upon Jane Clayton, would she but permit him to share this means of escape that she had discovered. He would promise anything if she would let him come aboard the dugout, but he did not think that it was necessary to do so. He saw that he could easily reach the bow of the boat before it cleared the shore, and then it would not be necessary to make promises of any sort. Not that Rokoff would have felt the slightest compunction in ignoring any promises he might have made the girl, but he disliked the idea of having to sue for favor with one who had so recently assaulted and escaped him. Already he was gloating over the days and nights of revenge that would be his while the heavy dugout drifted its slow way to the ocean. Jane Clayton, working furiously to shove the boat beyond his reach, suddenly realized that she was to be successful, for with a little lurch the dugout swung quickly into the current, just as the Russian reached out to place his hand upon its bow. His fingers did not miss their goal by half a dozen inches. The girl almost collapsed with the reaction from the terrific mental, physical, and nervous strain under which she had been laboring for the past few minutes, but thank heaven, at last she was safe. Even as she breathed the silent prayer of thanksgiving, she saw a sudden expression of triumph lighten the features of the cursing Russian and at the same instant he dropped suddenly to the ground, grasping firmly upon something which wriggled through the mud toward the water. Jane Clayton crouched, wide-eyed and horror-stricken, in the bottom of the boat, as she realized that at the last instant success had been turned to failure, and that she was indeed again in the power of the malignant Rokoff. For the thing that the man had seen and grasped was the end of the trailing rope with which the dugout had been moored to the tree. Join us next week, Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here at 1001 Stories for the Road, to catch chapters 15 and 16 of The Beasts of Tarzan. We appreciate your sharing the show with friends, and we appreciate reviews very, very much. Reviews help new listeners find us. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.